Welcome back to another episode of the Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1985 John Landis directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Chris Ramirez. I'm one of the co-hosts of Minute Impossible, uh, where we break down the Mission Impossible franchises one minute at a time. Right now, we're at Mission Impossible 2, and I'm your host this week. Uh, We're going to start this week off with episode number 16. So as we start uh, minute 16 here, we've got Ed heading off, actually, he's heading off into the night. Uh, so he's heading off into the night because of his insomnia and he's having trouble sleeping as usual. Uh, he's just found out that his wife is having an affair with him. He hates his job, hates his life. So he's just driving around L.A. as one would do when they're uh, not happy with things in their life. Uh, he comes to a stoplight and uh, we see he's just kind of in a daze. Um this minute, minute 16 as it is, has him just kind of roaming L.A. by himself in his little car. Uh, when he comes to the stoplight, he just sits there for a minute, less than a minute, honestly. But uh, he sits there and all of a sudden a flashlight and cop car cop uh, sounds are heard. And next to him are two cops asking if he's OK. Um, he says yes. And uh, they say the light is green. He moves forward. Uh, goes on, finds his way to LAX. Uh, and that's basically what this minute entails. But there's more to it than that. I mean, we're, we're building up to a, a... We've gone through the first 15 minutes, and now we're about to hit our inciting incident in this film. Uh, so it, we're, we're about to kick into high gear when it comes to Into the Night is Concerned. Um, as you guys have probably know by this point, you know, we're 15, 16 minutes into the film. Um, this film came out in 1985. I remember going to see it just to give you a little bit of a personal history on my end with this film. I remember going to see this film at a drive-in, probably opening weekend. It may have been the weekend after because I lived in a small, uh, a small part of Texas called the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, and down there we had maybe three, four movie theaters um, total um, in the McAllen Mission area. Uh, we had one sort of uh, theater that I grew up in called The Border. Um, that played sometimes played first rounds, but usually played movies two, three weeks, maybe a month out after they've been released. Um, and they played a lot of stuff that normally the regular theaters there didn't get. We had one three screen theater in a, in the mall, uh, and we had a two screen theater uh, on the other side of town that played most of the big movies. And then we had a smaller two screen theater out in the the other part of town, up in the far area, which is it, it's like a triangle of Mission, McAllen. Bar, which is where I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, it's right on the on the Rio Grande River in the border there. Uh, but anyway, those seven theaters that we had, eight theaters that we had, were all we had. Uh, on top of that, though, we had drive-ins, uh, which a lot of you guys might not know about uh, not having grown up in that time period. But if you grew up in the 80s and the 70s, there were these things called drive-ins, which were outdoor movie theaters where we would drive with our cars, uh, park the car, and watch the movie. Um, now, if you were my age at the time, I was, uh, 13 when this movie came out, uh, sorry, I was 11 when this movie came out. I apologize. I was 11 when this movie came out in 85 
and my parents and myself and my younger brother and sister would go out every weekend to the movies uh, at the drive-in because it was cheaper for us to go. We all packed up in a car. Was, you know, they paid by the car load. We get some pizzas. We get some chairs. We'd park the car backwards or the truck backwards. We'd sit back there with the with the with our chairs and our pizza and our drinks and watch the movies. It's always a double feature. Uh, you get movies like I remember going to see uh, a double feature that was. Uh, it was The Fly and Aliens. I remember that. It was another double feature. I remember we went to go see um, Back to the Future. And there was another movie with it, but I don't remember what the other movie was uh, about off the top of my head. But we, things like that. You know, you go to, the, to double features like that in the 80s, and it was it was amazing. Uh, there was So there was one theater, uh, one, one drive-in that had two screens on one side of town. And then in my, on my hometown, there was one drive-in that had a one-screen theater. So I'm talking a lot about movies, movie theaters here to get to my point. But my point is that uh, my parents, we went to go see Into the Night. Um, and we showed up probably five, six minutes into the movie, maybe less. Uh, we showed up at the point where Ed and, and uh, with Jeff, and, Jeff Goldblum and uh, Dan Aykroyd are sitting in their car talking uh, in traffic. So we missed the whole intro and everything. I had no idea what was going on at this point. Uh, but I remember really getting into this movie starting at this point of the film because I had no idea what to expect. I'd seen the trailers, but I didn't know uh, what was what. And I loved John Landis films at this point in my life because I, I loved the a Animal House. I loved the Blues Brothers, uh, Trading Places, Thriller, and especially American Warfare from London. That movie just made such an impact on me as a child that, that I was sold with John Landis on anything he did at that point. Um, and as, we, as, the, as, a, as the other uh, hosts have talked about, uh, you know, this is coming after a pretty bad place in his life with the Twilight Zone situation and all the court hearings and the indictments and then the, the clearing of his name. So he had made a movie in maybe two years, probably, uh, since uh, Trading Places and um, the Thriller video. Um, so yeah, I mean, with Twilight Zone in between there, it, it, he kind of lost a lot of favor in, in, the, in the filmmaking community. So this was his first big comeback. And not only did he have this film coming out in February of this year, but he also had Spies Like Us, which is another great uh, Landis film um, that came out in December of the same year. So he got quite busy after this. And then the following year, he had uh, he had Three Amigos and his career just started picking up again. But it was never the same after that Twilight Zone incident. And, and that's a shame. But it's also it's a very sad situation because of, of the way it was handled. And um, he's always ha he's, he's had to live with that since then. And that, that that's that's hard uh i can get that and i've, I've had the, the opportunity to meet landis over the years um i met him once at dave's laser in uh, los angeles when i lived out there he and rick baker were signing uh dvds at the time and uh they just released the new uh dvd special edition of american war for london so of course i got um i went out there and i got my uh american war for london dvd signed and my coming to america uh dvd signed but i've been kicking myself ever since because i didn't get my three amigos DVD sign. Uh, I, I love that movie, and when I when I talked to Alfonso uh, Arau about it, uh, when I interviewed him for a Walk in the Clouds years ago, um, I told him how much that movie meant to me as a child and and as, as a teenager. And he says that he gets that all the time. He gets asked to do the old Wapo voice and whatnot. But the same thing went with uh, when I met El, uh, John Landis and. Rick Baker, I was just like in awe of them and told them how much it meant to me to be able to meet them and, and tell them how much of an impact their films had made on me. Um, 
But with this film, this was one of those films that not a lot of people have seen, uh, not a lot of people had known about, even still to this day. Uh, but me, I'm one of those people who have been an ardent fan of this film since the beginning, since like the day I saw it. I was like, oh my God, this is this, this is amazing. Now, you know, John Landis doesn't have what a lot of people call um, uh, overly flamboyant style as far as the filmmaker is concerned. But to, to, to me, he and John Carpenter have some of the most distinct auteur styles as filmmakers of the 80s. Um, you can always tell their films. You can always tell a John Landis film. You can always tell a John Carpenter film by the way that they shoot it, by the way it's paced, by the way it's edited. The beauty of what they do is in the simplicity. John doesn't do a whole lot with camera moves unless it call, it's called for. He keeps the camera very still and moves it methodically. The same with John Carpenter. They both are very skilled with their camera. And, and that's because they grew up in this old Hollywood sort of, this is how you they added their own touch to it so that as simple as it may seem and as, as, as mundane as the moments may seem, there's an extraordinary moment to it that really lends a whole other layer to what's going on. With this film, it's the idea that this simple guy who's unhappy with his life and unhappy with his, with his situation gets thrown unexpectedly into this thriller sort of exciting life that gives him motivation, that gives him meaning. Um, and we're about to kick off into that with this minute. Um, Ed pulls into LAX and what's about to happen to him is something that he's probably not really realized he's been longing for, but he has. Um, in a lot of ways, this movie is, is a kindred spirit to another film that came out in 85, uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Um, that film, much like this one, is about a guy who's unhappy with his life and unhappy with the way things are and gets thrown into this wild world, almost as crazy as this one, if not crazier. Um, and, and, and that one and this one play very well as double features because they're very much of the same cloth, but very different stylistically, very different uh, energy-wise. Uh, after Hours is more like a fever dream, and this one is more like a like a, a thriller. So it's it's it, it's fun in that sense to to compare the two, even though Into the Night came out in February of '85, uh, After Hours came out in October of '85. Um, they're both lesser known films from those two major directors of the '70s and '80s, um, but they're both fantastic films. So if you if you haven't seen after hours or haven't heard of it go check it out it's also very good and it, like i said if you like this film if you love this film you're going to love that film as well you're going to see a lot of the same sort of uh uh quirks and ideas behind the two um but with this film you know it's also got a bit of a to me as i watched it again recently because they just put out a about a year ago maybe a year and a half yeah but a little over a year ago they put shout factory put out a brand new blu-ray uh, special edition of this film and myself and my buddy uh, Kevin Bullard who is another big fan of this film were so excited that this movie came out and I literally spent a day or two just going through the film and watching it again and and seeing the special features and everything uh, it's one of those films that if you grew up like I said if you grew up in the 80s you saw on HBO it was on HBO like all the time so I can't I'm cer certainly surprised that there's so many people who haven't heard of this film or hadn't seen it growing up in the 80s um, you know, even, even my ex wife hadn't seen it and, and I, I'd shown it to her and she's like, I think I've seen this, but I can't remember, but it's such a great film. And, uh, and it's, it's one of those things that it, 
I think it, because of, of Jeff Goldblum's performance in this, he's so subtle and so laid back and so he, he does tired so well that when he really, he seems so passive and so um, passive aggressive as it were, that as he goes through the film and as he finally gets to his, you know, his big push where he's starting to, to take control of his life and, and the situation, um, it's impressive to watch. It, 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 it's the subtleties that Jeff Goldblum pulls in this film. And this is before, you know, he was quote unquote Jeff Goldblum as he is considered now. He was still doing like these little subtle things with his with his acting, but it was all there. It was all underneath the surface and he did it so well. I mean, there's a the funny story. I don't know if anybody else has told it yet or not, but John Landis went out to Jack Nicholson to try to do the role of uh, to play the role of Ed. And um, Jack told him, you know, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I like it, but it's not my thing. The the lead Ed doesn't do anything in this film. He's just he doesn't do anything. But to me, he does a lot. I mean, he motivates things. He's he's motivated once he 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 comes into the situation that he's about to come into and, and finds his life shook and shook basically as you were and 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 turned upside down and he's he's a better person for it um again this is a, another film to, to bring up that um i know there's not a lot going on in this minute so i've got a lot to say about other films uh that that kind of play off of the same themes or even have some sort of uh you know kinship to this one a uh, fight club is the same sort of thing we got a guy here who who doesn't really isn't really happy with his life just like in fight club and in fight club it goes to extremes of course because he creates you know for those of you who haven't seen fight club spoilers coming up he creates a, another persona to deal with that and deal with his insomnia so in a lot of ways fight club and into the night have that same insomnia thing uh only here ed actually participates and is aw is aware of what's going on in his life uh, versus Tyler, who doesn't really understand it and thinks it's some other person and visualizes this other person in this other life, um, even though it's really his own way out. Um, and the same could be said here. You know, you could you could be looking at this film and you could, you know, theoretically and, and, and theorize it in film theory sense that, you know, film criticism, you can look at it and say, oh, this is all in Ed's head. He's not really doing this. This is just a dream that he's having because he's an insomniac and he's creating this danger in this situation to get himself uh, motivated to bring himself into a happier, happier place in his life. Uh, but of course that's not the case. That's just the way of you looking at it, you know, in, in the, in the theory sort of way of things, or maybe, you know, the, the throw it out there sort of ways of looking at, at the film. But the reality is that this is very much happening to Ed as opposed to like Tyler in, um, or the narrator in, in fight club. That's you, you can question it even though you don't. But I, I think I've spoken enough for this minute. Um, so in wrapping up minute 16, we see Ed uh, pull up to LAX. We see the planes in the background, and it looks like he's about to go park his car. Um, but that's all I have for this minute. So before I go, I'd like to let you know that you can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play or at the main site, nightminute.com. You can also find us on social media at The King Lives Listener's Limo on Facebook and on Twitter at Night Minute. You can find me, Chris Ramirez, and my co-host, Jonathan Howell, at MinuteImpossible.com. Or you can also find our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or anywhere you find your podcasts from. You can, you can join us on social media at The Impossible Minute Force on Facebook or at Min Impossible on Twitter and 
Minute Impossible on Instagram. I've been Chris Ramirez. Thank you for joining me and come back tomorrow for another minute of Into the Night. Thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.